0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we are actually going to do a reaction video, not the kind of reaction video that we have talked about in Virtual Legality in the past, where a couple of people watch some YouTube clips and say, hey, that's amazing. As a matter of fact, the topic of those specific kinds of reaction videos are going to be discussed as part of this one. But instead, the kind of reaction that I like to do, which is actually talking about the substance of what another person, in particular on YouTube, has had to say about the stuff that I hold near and dear to my heart here in virtual legality. And for those of you who follow the channel, you know that a lot of our content is based on discussing intellectual property, intellectual property rights, how the copyright system works, particularly in the United States, where I am a business and transactions lawyer, but also how it affects things on YouTube and the internet and pop culture at large. So yesterday, March 23rd, 2020, a YouTuber by the name of Tom Scott, who I am reliably informed by people all across the internet and folks that DM me and otherwise asked me to talk about this particular video, is very, very famous. A very popular media personality in the United Kingdom and beyond. Has 2.2 million subscribers here on YouTube. He put up a video that said, YouTube's copyright system isn't broken, which is, hey, just saying that sentence aloud is problematic for any number of people on YouTube, at least 1.1 thousand of them by the looks of things. But as you know, if you followed virtual legality, we've said that kind of thing before. And as a matter of fact, the content ID system that YouTube uses, I think is a a boon, is a gift to the vast majority of people that put content up on this service. But he, he continues with his title by saying, it's not YouTube's copyright system that is broken. The world's is. And if you are familiar with virtual legality, if you followed us before, you know that when we talk about these things, usually we talk about them in the context of disagreement, right? Last year, we talked about uh, Ross Scott's video, a completely different Scott. I don't believe there's any relation there at Accursed Farms, claiming that games as a service, those games that use server infrastructure that have live services components are fraud, because the software licenses prevent you from doing certain things in the license itself. And I responded to that. I said, no, it's not fraud. You can disagree with what the license says, but it's not fraud. And that led to a wonderful conversation with Mr. Scott. And I think we had a lot of uh, informative discussion. I think we hopefully illuminated this topic for a number of people. And though I don't know that we necessarily agree with everything at the end of that conversation, anytime you can have a good, well-meaning disagreement with someone else where you can hopefully understand where they're coming from and they can understand where you're coming from, I think we add a little bit to the world. So hopefully virtual legality is helping do that. And hey, if Tom Scott ever watches this video on YouTube and says, I want to talk to that Rick Hogue person, I want to get on virtual legality or I want to have him on my channel to talk about why I think he's wrong or what I think he misinterpreted, or maybe something that I said that he liked and he wants to talk about further. He is more than welcome to do that. My DMs are open. I'm happy to have that conversation. But before we dive into his video, and we're going to kind of talk about it in various chunks, I do want to say uh, a brief hat tip to the person that actually identified this for me first, which is Parallax, Parallax Abstraction on my Twitter, who said, hey, Helgla, the excellent Tom Scott did a lengthy video essay on copyright law. Curious what you think about it and its legal positions. And I will say this, unlike the Accursed Farms video, overall, I think Mr. Scott here has the right idea. He goes for 45 minutes or so and talks about three primary things. The first, he describes the current situation on YouTube, just in the world in general, and I think he gets a lot right there. And certainly, if you followed virtual legality, there's not going to be a lot of surprises when he talks about largesse and generosity and exactly what kind of intellectual property rights you have and you don't have. But there are a couple of things that I want to uh, at least add my own two cents on, if not outright clarify the positions that are held in this essay. The second part he talks about is YouTube and content ID and how YouTube kind of interacts with the DMCA and copyright law, particularly in the United States because United States is the driver for a lot of these things, oftentimes because a lot of the tech companies are founded here, and so they have to abide by United States law first and foremost. Then the third part of his video is essentially action items. All right, I've described what it is. I've described how YouTube operates. What can we do to change it? What can we do to fix it? And it's there where I think I probably have the most kind of uh, considerations to be added to the discussion that Mr. Scott raises here, primarily because I think when we are talking about significant reform and reform that has been wanting in the intellectual property sphere and the copyright sphere for a very, very long time, you have to be very careful about how you position things. You have to be very specific about what it is that you're asking for, why people should go for it, why others who maybe wouldn't go for it, how they're going to be treated, how they're going to be handled. And I think while Mr. Scott has the right idea on a lot of this stuff, in virtual legality, we have talked very, very often about the fact that copyright law, intellectual property law in general, needs to be relooked in the world of the digital, in the world of the internet. It needs to be reexamined by legislation all over the world, but in particular in the United States. And so at the end of the day, I'm gonna make a lot of comments here. I'm gonna comment on a lot of things. Some of them might appear to be nitpicky to you, especially if you're not familiar with how we operate here in virtual legality. But as the overall kind of understanding of this video, if you take one thing away, you click off of this video right now, I would say this I'm a lawyer, I work with intellectual property, I work with licenses regularly, and the overall thrust of this video is a correct one, is an apt one, and it is well worth your time to watch. It is well done. It is thorough. We will, of course, link it in the description to this video so that you can check it out yourself. And as part of that statement, I will also say this. I've pulled out maybe a dozen different quotes that Mr. Scott made in his video that I want to talk about more fulsomely, but you are going to lose a bit of the nuance that he adds to his own discussion as anyone would when you've got 42 minutes of conversation that we are now going to talk about only a dozen slides of content around so i highly recommend checking out his video hearing what he has to say maybe doing that first and then coming back here to check out my own comments if you don't want to do that that's 100% fine we welcome you here in virtual legality but do understand that some of what we're going to discuss is going to come off as a little bit choppy primarily because we're going to jump through minutes of conversation that Mr. Scott adds to what he is describing. With that all out of the way, let's dive in. And as I just said, his first section is talking about what copyright law is and essentially trying to respond to a lot of his fellow YouTubers about what they generally complain about. If you haven't been in the comments to my videos in virtual legality, you might not be aware of the fact that a lot of people disagree with what we have to say on this channel primarily out of notions about what things should be hey that's not fair the way the copyright act operates shouldn't be that way fair use should be more broad all these various things and like i tell my clients that's all well and good i have no problem with you advocating for reform i don't even have a problem with you advocating nakedly for selfish reform that would only benefit you and you just want it to benefit you because that's what you want but my job as a lawyer every lawyer's job is to first explain the way things are. And so in virtual legality, we try to talk about the Copyright Act, what it is, how it operates, and not necessarily what it should be. In this particular video, we're going to go into that a little bit. I'm going to advocate for certain positions that are maybe a little bit different and distinct from Mr. Scott's here. But overall, when we start talking about what Mr. Scott says, it is important to note that he does all the right disclaimers. He says all the right things insofar as He spends entire sections of this opening piece of his video saying, I'm just describing to you the way the world is. And because of those disclaimers, I do want to kind of identify a few of those areas where I think maybe he elides the realities a little bit, if only because I think the better clarity that we can have on what the copyright law is, how it operates, who benefits from it, who doesn't, the better clarity we can have on those kinds of topics, the more reasonable any kind of ask that you would have, any kind of action item that you would have at the end of your thesis winds up being. So let's take a look at this first slide just to get a little bit of color for what I'm talking about here. Here's a quote that he had. He said, that was the world that copyright law was designed for. And he said that in response to basically articulating a specific complaint that was made against a YouTuber that that YouTuber went and got a whole outrage mob going against. And then it was realized that that YouTuber didn't actually have all of the intellectual property rights that they needed to have for a piece of music they were using in their video. And so the owner of that piece of music came down hard on them. And as far as copyright law is concerned, that owner of that piece of music was right. And he says, but The way this was supposed to work is that the YouTuber would have had a bunch of lawyers and the music people would have had a bunch of lawyers. And the third party whom the YouTuber contracted with, where he thought he got all the rights he needed to put up his video, they would have had a bunch of lawyers. Everybody would have gotten into a room and the lawyers would have figured things out, primarily in my experience, by yelling at each other. But the lawyers would have figured everything out. And that doesn't happen now because there exists an entire kind of economy of YouTubers and independent creators that aren't necessarily even thinking about what they produce as a business and so aren't hiring lawyers, maybe don't have business insurance, don't have any kind of insurance or coverage for infringement claims or other kinds of omissions of their quote unquote officers, Uh, certainly depending on whether or not they've created an entity to cover their liabilities in any event. Uh, But he says, hey, that was the world that copyright law was designed for, all of these lawyers, all these big corporations. Because individuals couldn't make things that were viewed by millions without corporate support, you needed a publisher or a broadcaster or a huge production company, and those companies had lawyers. Now, his point here is apt. His point here is that, generally speaking, when you've got a legal conflict, you need lawyers, you need money, the litigation system in any country but especially in the United States is going to have a certain de minimis expense that you have to expend to even go and seek out justice and when you're talking about massive differentials between who has the cash and who doesn't it very very often makes sense for that individual or even small company that doesn't have the cash to essentially settle to walk away to abide by a cease and desist even if it doesn't make sense that's all true However, it's also not specific to copyright, and this statement here that that was the world that copyright law was designed for isn't specifically terribly accurate. So I've pulled up the Wikipedia entry, which I always caution everybody to do. They aren't always that great, especially for anything that's remotely political, but here we don't really use it for political purposes. We're just talking about the nature of the Copyright Act when it was passed. So we've got here a great quote. It says in 1783, which was actually seven years before the first Copyright Act in the United States, because the Articles of Confederation, our first constitution here, didn't actually give the federal government much powers. They essentially had these aspirational statements for what the state could do. And they said that nothing is more properly a man's own than the fruit of his study and that the protection and security of literary property would greatly tend to encourage genius and to promote useful discoveries. In other words, the copyright laws were being considered in the same kind of bucket as patent laws. Things like writing books were considered to be like inventions for somebody that came up with something new and novel and useful for everyone else. Keep that in mind, put a pin on that, because he's going to talk about potentially changing the length of copyright law at the end of his video, and we're going to discuss it at the end of this one, and equate it a little bit to patents, which have a much, much shorter shelf life because I think that manufacturing in the world recognizes that there are ways to tweak it that are to the benefit of everyone else, when that same argument hasn't necessarily been listened to very much when we talk about creative works. And that's what he's going to advocate for at the end of his video. Now, 1783 is before the 1790 Act actually passed, but it's worth noting here that the historian David Ramsey petitioned Congress seeking to restrict the publication of his History of the American Revolution in 1789 which would lead to the copyright act of 1790. So what you've got here is not corporations. As a matter of fact, corporations really wouldn't come into existence until the same time frame, the 1790s, first industrial corporation 1813. You don't have those kinds of combined forces, these giant piles of money advocating for the copyright act as it was initially created in 1790. But It's also worth noting that what Mr. Scott is really most concerned with is how the Copyright Act looks now here in the world of 2020, rather than in 1790, where you had essentially 28-year term for your copyright, which went up and then up and then up and now exists as it does right now, also in the world of the DMCA and takedowns and everything else. But it's worth noting just in terms of presenting the strongest argument you possibly can, that the world of copyright law was not built, at least not in the United States, and I don't think in the UK either, to advantage specifically corporations. You can absolutely argue that by the time the 1976 amendments roll around and Disney gets its pound of flesh and gets to control Mickey Mouse forever and ever and ever, amen, that it has been kind of ceded to those authorities. But the world that copyright law was designed for was the world of the inventor novelist, the world of the historian that wants to protect their publication. And so we don't need this ground to make the arguments that he's going to make in his video. And so I would just put it aside. But that's a minor complaint about what the overall thrust of this video is, which is entirely apt. And more importantly, his statement about Being able to use the litigation system to avail yourself of the courts and how expensive that is and how individuals are never going to be able to leverage that court system, that justice system, as well as the more well-resourced is exactly correct. We've talked about that a lot in virtual legality. I generally refer to it in poker terms as the side with the biggest chip stack can bludgeon you to death just with costs, just with discovery, just with the cost of legal counsel, maybe with the cost of filing if the other side of the table is small enough. But that's not limited to copyright. That is a problem all over with the entirety of the justice system. And it's one of the reasons that I tend to advocate for really exploring changes to the entirety of justice systems, to look for more remote justice systems, to open up the legal system in various Western countries, certainly because those are the ones that I'm familiar with, but all around the world to get that access to justice concept into the hands of more people. But as you can imagine, that is met with wide resistance by a number of my colleagues in the legal field. With that out of the way, let's talk about, just briefly, if you're in virtual legality for the first time, what the Copyright Act does, how fair use works, because that's very important to a number of things that he says, and one of the most important reasons to not necessarily jump on the reform bandwagon for copyright. It's very simple. Regardless of what the terms are and everything else, copyright exists to give exclusive rights to the creator of a work. That creator gets the exclusive right to reproduce, to prepare derivative works, and that's something that I've talked about a lot in the past, right? Only recently, last week, we did a video on Nintendo striking Mario from Dreams, which wound up leading to quotes in IGN about how Sony covers these things and their license arrangements and how anybody that makes something that uses Mario in a Sony toolkit game is infringing on Nintendo's copyright, but that doesn't mean necessarily that Nintendo will take it down. It also doesn't mean that if you make a Sonic the Hedgehog, that Sega will take it down because all of this lives in what I tend to call largesse, that these infringements are allowed by the content holders, by the intellectual property controllers, because they view them as somehow good. Either because they directly view them as marketing and useful to their company's efforts or because they understand that the negative publicity that would come from a strike like this one and the IGN article that talks about Nintendo striking dreams creations could be worse than just letting it go, letting it slide on on dreams and things along those lines. So derivative works are very, very important to the discussion that we have because that's what we reflect on most often here in the world of the 21st century. Everybody's making derivative works of everybody else's stuff. In fact, this is a derivative work in some ways of Mr. Scott's video, right? I'm going to be talking about quotes that he made. I'm gonna be talking through them with you and making my own critiques and my, uh, my own analysis. And that derivative work winds up being fair use because of that criticism, because of the fact that it is transformative. I'm not playing his video for you. I'm talking about what he has to say And I'm critiquing it. So when we talk about fair use, we've talked about the problems with this USC 107 quite often. But one of those problems is that it is completely facts and circumstances based, right? We've done a lot of videos in virtual legality where we look at, hey, is this thing fair use? And a number of commenters come in and say, can't you just tell me, can't you just tell me if X is fair use or if Y is fair use? And the answer is no, I can't. Almost entirely, this section of the code says we will determine whether something is fair use when it is before us as a court primarily. And in determining whether the use made of a work in any particular case is a fair use, we will consider the purpose, the nature, the amount of what was used and the effect it has on the potential market. But that's a balancing test that's a very fuzzy line because the court wants to reserve for itself the ability to decide on novel things if this wasn't such a fuzzy test youtube might not ever have existed in the first place because whatever the law might have said as a bright line might have been over inclusive and essentially eliminated the ability for any of these internet services to start up and i think for the most part everybody agrees that they are good overall even if there are infringements, even if there are bad actors. And Mr. Scott actually gets to that point. He says the line of fair use is very fuzzy and both sides can have very strong and conflicting arguments. A hundred percent true. That's the job of the courts to solve if both sides can afford it. And that's where the rubber hits the road. We've talked about this in a lot of our videos on this channel, but the chip stack is very, very important because if you are running a YouTube channel and if you do get either that content ID claim or that copyright strike, or maybe something more formal, a formal letter from a law firm or something along those lines, you have to decide what you want to do with it. And one of those options is going to be, how much can I make from this? How worthwhile is it to me? And what would it cost to defend? Regardless of whether or not you can win a fair use claim, whether you can win a fair use argument, it is always worthwhile to note that it acts in the law, even if it's not called this, like an affirmative defense. So what you've got is you've got an infringement claim that looks like infringement, but for USC 107, where you can say that it's fair use. And by the time you would get to the place where you can make that defense, you have spent the money on discovery. You have spent the money on lawyers. And the other side knows that. And so there is the opportunity for abuse in the current copyright system, and in particular, Under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which allows for these takedown notices, which are supposed to certify that they have considered fair use and they have found it wanting. But that is the major, major problem with the DMCA as it stands today, is that you don't have those penalties for what are undoubtedly bad actors using takedown notices, and in particular, using YouTube against people that don't deserve it. We're going to talk about that a little bit more as we proceed. Continuing with his arguments, he talks about the various ways in which the internet uses this intellectual property, and he gets to a statement that I just wanted to comment on briefly. Again, this is one of those smaller items, but he says, photography is an art and an expensive one. He's he's backing up the usefulness of copyright here. And yeah, until we live in magical post-scarcity Star Trek space communism, you shouldn't just be able to rip off a photographer's copyrighted work and use it, except that's what the internet does a lot. The only thing I wanted to kind of take a step back on in this is the notion that even if we lived in Star Trek world, there wouldn't be some version of copyright because copyright is still useful for a number of things that aren't specifically just related to monetary compensation. Right? We see even even the Star Trek world, and I can't imagine this ever being a difference in the in the land of humanity, that people want to advance in their careers, that somebody that makes a research paper wants to be able to use that research paper to explain why they should be made a science-based captain or whatever it might be, maybe an admiral of particularly sciencey things or what have you. And so there's always going to be a place, even if it's not directly related to wealth Distribution or compensation that you're going to have some version of copyright. Because if you didn't, then Dr. Lazarus could put together a paper that explains all this good stuff, and a different doctor could put their name on it and then take credit for it and put it out there in the world. And somehow Dr. Lazarus doesn't get that job that he really wants. He doesn't get to explore the Alpha Quadrant or where have you. And you might say, Rick, that's plagiarism. I would say, yep, it is plagiarism, but it's not a crime in and of itself. Plagiarism isn't specifically a crime until you start getting into copyright infringement. And if you take copyright infringement away, you've got problems. And this kind of concept is covered in what we generally refer to as moral rights, which are different from the specific reproduction, derivative works, and performance rights that we just talked about in USC 106. Moral rights, as the copyright office delightfully tells us, comes from the French phrase droit morale, which I will be told again in the comments to this video that I pronounced horribly, horribly wrong. And I'm okay with it. I want to improve on that, but I never remember how to pronounce it. So I apologize in advance. And generally refers to certain non-economic rights that are considered personal to an author. Chief among these rights are the right of an author to be credited as the author of their work and the right to prevent prejudicial distortions of the work, the right of integrity, right? So you want to say, okay, I've made this thing And you can't suddenly now make this thing that I made a day ago into some form of Nazi propaganda. And that the law views, and I think general people view, as a good thing for the author to be able to do. Because if you don't change the name and then you suddenly put it in this specific light, that can have negative ramifications that are completely non-economic on the way that you live your life. And so copyright's never going to go entirely away Because while we're talking about the exclusion, the actual right to copy, to reproduce, to make derivative works, there are other rights that tie to this. And I think, again, this is one of those pieces of argumentation that we don't need to make the overall argument that the Copyright Act and the intellectual property substructure in general is requiring of reform. But not the biggest deal in the world. It's just something that I wanted to highlight as it popped out to me while I was watching his video. Continuing. Anyway. The photographer who took that original distracted boyfriend picture, the one I'm sure everybody is familiar with, was asked how he felt about his work being used everywhere without permission. And he said, they're just a group of people doing it in good faith. We are not going to take any action except for the extreme cases in which this good faith doesn't exist. That is an act of generosity on his part. And I want to dovetail that with something that's a little later in the video, but is what I want to talk about because it's exactly the same kind of concept. In the same way, uploading video game footage to YouTube is widely understood to be okay, but that's questionable. We've seen companies decide in the past that actually they don't want videos of their games online. It is very easy to make the argument that online streaming of games affects sales. And as a matter of fact, we wound up doing a video on this not too long ago, only a month ago, feels like a little bit longer due to certain viral outbreaks happening around the world, where we talked about whether streaming video games is infringement. Mr. Scott does a great job of talking about this and actually saying, hey, those Let's Plays, everything where you're not talking and you just kind of show a game, those probably are infringement. A lot of people come to my comments and say, Rick, if they're infringement, why do they even exist? Why are they allowed? And if you actually go back to kind of the transitions, you will find that video game companies in particular, and certain other companies, whenever this transition happened with respect to them in their particular medium, had a lot of difficulty with this. When streaming first came out, when Twitch first came out, and YouTube videos just in general came out, a lot of video game companies, especially independent developers who aren't necessarily being advised by giant public relations firms, came out and said, hey, wait, you're stealing our stuff. We want people to buy that to get access to that footage or to that music or to that experience. And so a lot of people fought against it. And what happened was, unlike the legal system, the public relations system, the actual societal systems that underlie all this stuff, decided that they liked that. And they started saying the companies that took that away from them were bad. They were bad actors and we don't like them. And so the companies evaluated that and said, how are our sales being affected by these streams? And Some numbers people came back and said, we don't know that they're being affected at all. In fact, we think maybe some of our sales are increasing because people watch this game and they check it out and they want to experience it for themselves. And so a lot of game companies decided, okay, Twitch isn't the worst thing in the world. The PlayStation 4 and the Xbox One started adding sharing features. Even the Switch has a sharing feature of some kind, although Nintendo isn't the strongest online party participant. But these game companies started to say, okay, it's probably a good idea, but we want to have some restrictions. We want to say, okay, if we're a narrative game, we want to be able to turn off the sharing button on the PlayStation 4. If we are Atlas, we want to be able to tell you that you can't stream Persona 5 after three quarters of the way through the game because the ending is very important to us. And they get pushback from people on those various kinds of things. In the video that we wound up doing last month, one of the things I wanted to talk about was in this particular case, this gentleman was streaming FIFA games. And at some point in time, he decided to change his general streaming demeanor to instead make ad hominem attacks on Electronic Arts employees. And Electronic Arts said, well, that's not cool, and we don't like that. And so what they did was they issued a copyright strike on almost every video that he had put up that featured FIFA in either Twitch or YouTube. A number of people came out and asked me and said, is that okay? I mean, they can't possibly be infringements because everybody puts up their videos of opening up their ultimate team packs of FIFA. Are they infringing? And I said, well, yeah. They're derivative works of a game. And if the license doesn't specifically allow you to make those derivative works, to stream them publicly, and we did a very thorough analysis. You can see this is almost 50 minutes long here in virtual legality about how these various licenses can allow for these things. Uh, Mr. Scott himself brings up the Minecraft license, which we discussed, that does allow for certain things, does allow for certain streaming that other licenses don't. And I said, hey, yeah, they can strike these various things. And you should know when you think about what I generally call the age of the influencer, which is these influencers, these YouTube personalities that might play a game and say, this is great. I really want, I I think it's a great game. I'm doing this let's play. I'm really enjoying myself. That because of this kind of relationship, because you are constantly living at the largesse of the content IP holder, if you turn on them, and this is a very dramatic one because he started attacking them personally. If you turn on them, they have the ability to say, yeah, we're going to issue some copyright strikes and they can do that behind the scenes. And if you're familiar with the YouTube system, if you get three of those copyright strikes, you run the risk of having your entire livelihood, if you're a professional YouTuber, compromised because you said something negative about this game that you're otherwise streaming. And so while a lot of people in the video game industry or or followers, fans of the video game industry like to say, oh, the journalists are bought off or, oh, GameSpot or IGN can't be trusted, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that might be true in certain instances, but The people that are making that YouTube live stream that you love so much shouldn't get out of that kind of consideration, that critical analysis in your head, because they do live at the largesse of the IP holder. And a lot of people come into my comments, a lot of people talk to me and are very surprised by this, that so much of the world is based on this concept of largesse, is based on this concept of what Mr. Scott describes as generosity, that it seems hard for people to kind of acknowledge that that's how so much of this operates, that almost everyone that is interacting with various parts of these things is infringing on someone's intellectual property, or at least they would get in the door and you'd have to prove fair use at a fundamental level that that includes streams and other things. And it's beneficial for consumers when their software license agreements with Sony or with Microsoft or with any given developer has a little bit in it that says, yeah, you can stream this as long as you follow X, Y, and Z rules, but not all of those licenses do. And a company like Electronic Arts essentially keeps that ambiguity in place in their end user license agreement so that that yes, that generosity exists and that's great and the world loves it, but it can be taken away. Generosity is not a legal compact. Largesse is not a legal obligation. And so you always have the risk of the landowner, here the intellectual property owner, deciding that, well, if by your leave is the way we've been handling this relationship, you no longer have my leave to do whatever it is that you want to do. And so I 100% agree with this concept. I think he did a great job articulating exactly how the intellectual property infrastructure works in the world right now. But then we start to talk about other things. Before we do that, however, I did want to point out that he takes a specific section to talk about Juke and Media, which, if you followed virtual legality, you know is something that we've talked about quite a lot. He says, and viral video licensing companies like Juke and Media already search through YouTube for unlicensed use to the video clips they own. And while as a company, they are vilified by the creator community, they've, uh, they've got a point. And that's a point that we talked about at length in the video that we did. YouTube's MXR plays fair use extortion in the muddy middle of copyright that talked about fair use in that big giant gray area that is created by a court and by a statute that says, we'll know it when we see it. And we're looking at all this and you can analyze it just like I did in my video right here where I said, yeah, you know, looking at a volcano and then saying, wow, is probably not fair use. You didn't really add anything. You didn't really transform anything. A number of people came into my comments and said, but they have their video right up there and they're looking at it like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's different than the fundamental underlying video, or they only took 13 seconds out of a minute long video. It's like, well, they took the volcano explosion. I'm not sure the other time was really the, the heart of the intellectual property. And I would say also put a pin in this because Mr. Scott kind of winds up alighting this issue at the end of the day, when he talks about why copyright should be reformed, what benefits it has for folks and how YouTube creators could benefit and I think, yes, there are corporate abusers. There are people that are abusing the DMCA system, that are abusing the YouTube content ID system. But it, it doesn't help the argument. It doesn't help put you on the best footing to make this claim if you don't also acknowledge that there are YouTubers that walk this fine line. There are YouTubers that gleefully prance over this line and then complain about it and use the outrage mob to try to get things changed. And I don't know MXR plays. I did a video on them just kind of talking about their basic video and how I felt it was probably over the line for fair use. But it's part of this conversation. A lot of this doesn't happen. A lot of these companies aren't quite as draconian, aren't quite as vilified or taking actions that require that vilification if there aren't quite as many YouTubers and content creators and other individuals that are bad actors on their side of the line as well. And that's part of this story. And it's one part that you have to keep in mind when you're evaluating what the copyright law does, how you want to change it, because you are going to have to have all the stakeholders at the table. And one of the things they are going to say is, okay, but all of these people are making money. They aren't doing anything. And we can just lose all of the rights to our videos because you say so. And so you have to be able to start defending against those arguments. And one of those, one of those things is do we throw out some of this stuff? Do you actually say, yeah, okay, that shouldn't be acceptable. And I think to Mr. Scott's credit, he starts talking about these kinds of things, says they've got a point and says, yeah, that's the current state of the world. He doesn't go as far at the end of this video as I would like saying, should that be the state of the world? He basically starts saying the Copyright Act should be fairer for how we live today without kind of detailing what that might mean with a lot of specificity. And I think because you've got these various stakeholders, because you really do have a lot of people making legitimate money on YouTube, not hoglawed virtual legality, God knows, but hey, we're getting there. We're growing every day. Like, subscribe, share with your friends. But there are so many people making so much money that it is worthwhile for these content creators or these content holders to go and look at these creators and say, maybe you shouldn't be doing that. And I don't know that that's unfair. I don't know that that's wrong. And I don't know that Mr. Scott thinks it's unfair or wrong. But one of the issues that I have is that he doesn't kind of wind up on either side of the coin there. Next, he talks about, this is section two, this is a smaller section, exactly what YouTube does. And this is one of those areas where I agree with him entirely. And I think it's one of those areas where people wind up coming into my comments and yelling at me. He says, which brings us to how YouTube worked around this. Back in 2006, YouTube made an arrangement with the big music company so the big industry players wouldn't sue this new platform out of existence. The DMCA is a very, very important piece of the copyright infrastructure in the United States. And what it does, and we've covered this a lot in virtual legality. I think you can look up DMCA on my channel and see any number of videos. I was running out of tabs, so I didn't bring any of them up in this particular reaction video. But we cover the DMCA a lot. And what it does is it says, hey, I as YouTube, I'm not responsible for something that's infringing that's on my site. But if you tell me that it's infringing and you certify, you have to make some legal certifications, including after the famous Universal versus Lens case that you considered fair use and have found it to not apply here. Once you certify that that infringement exists, I can take it down at that point and not be liable for contributing to the infringement from whatever time period it survived on my service. And so the DMCA says you can do that. Then it has a counter notice period. And then the counter notice doesn't have to be uh, used by YouTube at all. And we can talk about that in a different video. Or the YouTube doesn't have to listen to it at all if the original owner winds up suing in federal court for the infringement. Now, that is a good statute overall. That's a good concept that was well thought out for how to kind of try to balance these various interests and allow the internet to live and to survive and to have user generated content on it. Very similar to how the Communications Decency Act Section 230 works, which we talked about yesterday in respect of the EARN Act and the Lindsey Graham bill, which I highly recommend checking out as well. But it doesn't balance everything perfectly. And as a matter of fact, having you have to go through federal court is very, 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 very expensive and very problematic for these small individual creators. So what YouTube said was, all right, we're going to broker a peace treaty of a kind we're going to make this content ID system. We're going to allow you to put up these various things that our robots are going to be able to sift through and determine whether there is an infringement. And if there is, we're not going to have you have a lawsuit. We're not going to have you claim infringement at a federal court. What we are going to have both sides essentially agree to is the money from this video will go to you instead of the person that created the video. And A lot of people complain about that, but Mr. Scott does exactly the right thing in his video, and he talks about the fact that this saved a whole lot of videos and a whole lot of people that basically just want to put up their home videos, don't want to necessarily make a living on YouTube. I think he described a wedding dance, things along those lines, that are undoubtedly infringing on the record company that owns those specific rights to that performance, but that Grandpa Joe wanted to put up so that his whole family could see it, and now Grandpa Joe can, without worrying about Copyright infringement lawsuits because YouTube came up with a fairly ingenious system to say there is something between illegal and legal. And what we are going to do is we're going to funnel this money as if Warner Brothers Entertainment had always made this video. And that's a good thing, but it does have its problems. As he points out here, there are categories of folks that wind up getting abuse thrown at them, wind up having owners that don't own claim that they do. And they act through the DMCA because the YouTube content ID, the YouTube copyright strike system mirrors and dovetails the requirements of the DMCA so that everything lines up with what the statutory requirements are. But the DMCA has a significant failing in it. And I would have loved to have seen Mr. Scott really kind of address this. That primary failing is that though there is a penalty provision for a certification that is wrongfully put forth that you knowingly put forth a certification that you know you didn't own, and that that covers certain really, really, really bad actors, it doesn't cover this muddy gray area. Because the way fair use works is because it's facts and circumstances based. As long as you put forth essentially a reasonable, good faith effort for why fair use doesn't apply to you, you can file that certification regardless and not get in trouble. You don't have those penalty provisions in the DMCA. And that's what needs... To change. Because as we see here, as Mr. Squawk, as Mr. Scott quotes, or the people who do in-depth music theory analysis of songs, very likely fair use, still get manual content ID claims. But I don't think content ID is broken. It's a reasonable stopgap. It works almost all the time. And we, in fact, did a video about this earlier this month. Called Wait, who just got threatened with a copyright strike that actually talked about the NYU law faculty holding a seminar in which they were essentially distinguishing between blurred lines and another song and analyzing those things for how they might be infringing each other and wound up getting copyright strikes put on their video and didn't get any transparency from YouTube about how to handle this. It's one of the things that we wound up talking about to a great extent. And they were able to go around the back door. They knew some YouTube employees and get it all fixed. But one of the things that NYU Law went out and said is that's not fair for everybody. Not everybody can call up their buddy at NYU, at uh, YouTube and say, hey, can you fix this all? And that is a problem with content ID. But it's a problem with content ID that lives in the space that is a problem with the DMCA itself. So any discussion of copyright law reform has to, in my opinion, start with looking at what the penalties are for a DMCA takedown notice that don't meet some standard that is objective regarding whether fair use should apply. Maybe a third-party standard, a reasonable person standard, as the law might say, that says it's not just whether or not you can create, whether you can concoct a memo, whether your legal counsel can concoct a memo, because believe me, I can, that says, yeah, this isn't fair use because of X, Y, and Z, and you put it in the file, and then you can file your certification, and now you have all the leverage because that person on YouTube doesn't have a law firm, doesn't have money, doesn't maybe have an entity, let alone insurance. That can't be the way this all operates. And that, to me, is the fundamental problem, is that there aren't penalties for wrongful certifications of infringing use. And those penalties need to be higher, They need to be more draconian. They need to be more significant before we can start talking about all the other reforms that need to happen with respect to the Copyright Act, which leads us right in to Mr. Scott's grand finale. So how do we fix it? We need three things. We need to update copyright law. We need a good small claims court for copyright. And we need to shorten how long copyright lasts. So the very first one, I actually don't have a separate slide on this topic because I don't think he really goes into a great amount of depth with respect to specificity here. He basically says copyright law doesn't work right now and we need to reform it to make it fairer, that that's going to be difficult, but it needs to be more representative of the world in which we live. And again, if Mr. Scott, you wind up watching this and you feel like you can articulate better what you were aimed at in this specific section... I don't want to put words in your mouth. That is what I took away from what you were describing here because you immediately start talking about small claims courts after that kind of statement that you say it needs to be fair or more specifically, I've got the quote here. It says, so first updating the law, this is a big goal, but the entirety of international copyright law needs to be rewritten to reflect what's fair in today's world. Everyone will have a different opinion of what that is. So it's a general kind of call to arms to Take another look at this, and I can't disagree with that. I don't think anybody can disagree with the fact that the world in 2020 is significantly different than it was in 1976 or even 1998, and now it needs another look through. But I think we also need to start advocating for specific things. It needs to have greater penalties for takedowns that you should know better than to actually file. It needs to have a greater understanding of what it means to make a a derivative work in the digital age. If you go back and you look at the Copyright Act, we're still talking about things like uh, phono records, uh, pantomimes. Uh, what else do we got here? Uh, audio audiovisual works uh, that relate to uh, choreography. Uh, we've got all these references here that need to be fixed up. These are the same kinds of things that we wound up discussing when we talked about whether Fortnite dances should be covered. When we talked about whether or not Uh, various aspects of slightly hummed tunes on YouTube should be covered and those kinds of things. It is absolutely appropriate to say we need to address the digital world in the copyright law. I think having a video like this and then just kicking the can and saying it needs to be fairer and everybody's going to have a different opinion on what that is, that isn't so specifically helpful. And I would love to have more contours, especially with an essay like this, which is going to be seen by so many people and which such a good job was done on to actually have a bit more of that context for what you are talking about here uh, with respect to Mr. Scott. Now, he does say he wouldn't change fair use all that much, and I think that's totally worth kind of commenting on. I wouldn't either. He also says, hey, that muddy middle, that messiness is necessary to encourage creativity. I entirely agree, but those aren't changes. Those are things that are relatively fine he then goes on to talk about how there needs to be just general reforms access to justice as it is called generally in my profession that more people need to be able to avail themselves of the justice system of the courts of litigation because right now we've got this big kind of deposit that is necessary to pay lawyers that know what they're doing to get you in the door to survive discovery and that that big chunk of money means that everything that is below that chunk of money doesn't actually get covered. There is no justice there. And it allows for a lot of leverage from folks that have the bigger chunk of money that don't care whether they lose it, the big chip stack at the table. And he talks about his experience in the UK, which I found very interesting. I do recommend checking out his video. And then he talks about the Case Act. He says, at the time of recording, the Copyright Alternative and Small Claims Enforcement Act, the Case Act, is passing through government. Unfortunately, it has massive flaws. Flaws which... It should be pointed out. We have talked about at length here in virtual legality, most recently in October of last year, when we talked about the fact that the voluntary nature of the thing didn't achieve its goals because the side that was most likely to not want to voluntarily do something like this would simply opt out and say, yeah, no, we're going to go through federal court. And that's not terribly helpful. But the secondary consideration here, which he has pointed out, which he has allied to in various aspects of his video is well worth pointing out, which is, Whenever you make reforms to a law, I always recommend to people to imagine that the rights that you are granting are held by the worst possible person or corporation or entity that you can think of. And so when we talk about, okay, we need to make this cheaper, we need to make this faster, we need to make this easier for someone to make an infringement claim, then people are going to make more infringement claims. And if people make more infringement claims, the people that are most likely to benefit from that are the folks like the Jukin medias of the world, like the Warner Brothers musics of the world that can pay for somebody to just file and file and file and file and file. And if that is now cheaper, that is going to be more attractive of a method for controlling their intellectual property and making claims that maybe don't win the day. But if it's cheap, it doesn't matter that much. And if it's still some kind of cost, it might matter a whole lot to the other side of the equation. So one thing that is always worth noting, and he actually says this in a couple places in his videos, and I wish it was kind of pulled through to this end point in his video a little bit more, is that it's worth noting that anything that you change, anything that you do here can be used against you in a court of law, very specifically, right? That if you make it easier, if you reform the Copyright Act in way X, Y, or Z, then that means the other side can utilize it too. And the Copyright Act, as much as you might hate it when a content ID claim comes up, or as much as you might hate it when Juke and Media sends you a cease and desist letter, it is also protecting your work. It is also protecting this video, this virtual legality episode that we are putting into a medium on YouTube. It is protecting that work. And so whenever you change this kind of entire superstructure of rights and obligations, it's worth thinking about stepping into the other side's shoes and saying, how does this affect me? How would that be a problem for me? Potentially, how would that be a problem for my family? And so I do think the Case Act has so, so many flaws. But the fact that folks are aimed at reforming the Copyright Act is in general a step in the right direction. I think he refers to it at some point in his video as a sidestep, or 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 something of a small step uh, in the right direction, and, and that's entirely true. But it's worth noting whenever you start kind of messing with the the various rule sets and regulations that govern the way the country operates, that you should assume that not only is it going to be used by the worst party that you know, but that worst party is going to have lobbyists to make sure that the rule is as beneficial to them as possible. So you want to be very careful with what you advocate. And that's just coming from a lawyer, right? That's coming from somebody who generally parades horribles among his clients, explains how things could go terribly, terribly wrong, tries to help them navigate the rocky shoals of rules and regulations, and says, always be very, very careful when you're advocating a change because a lot of other people are going to come in and they're going to have their own advocacy. And if you don't properly articulate exactly what it is that you're aimed at, what you want to have happen. Things can get worse. They, they really honestly can. Continuing with his video, and he's got only a couple last things that I want to really talk about. He moves on to talking about shortening the copyright kind of length of time. My main criticism here is with respect to specificity. So let's see what he actually says. He says, so then finally, we shorten how long copyright lasts. Under current U.S. law, if a modern work has an individual author, then its copyright generally lasts until death plus 70 years. For works by a corporation, it's 95 years from publication. It's also 120 years from creation if the creation isn't published for a certain amount of time because it's the lesser of those. But I think he did the right thing to not kind of get into the the legal weeds there. But it's a long, long, long time. But there's a couple of things that are worthwhile to note here. First, right now, the way it works for an individual is a tail period. It is until death, which is X amount of years from creating something, and then another 70 years versus a corporation, which doesn't have a life. Corporations aren't alive as much as they might seem to have souls or, or be evil on any given day. The corporation isn't alive. So what the law says is, okay, it's 95 years from when you, you know put it into publication, when you put it into the public hands. That is important because what he's about to advocate for here is a flat number, and he doesn't make a distinction either between individuals and corporations or between whether it is a current period or a tail period. Now, we can take from context what he means here. He says, so I would suggest 50 years. It's an easy number. It allows a couple of nostalgia cycles to happen, and it would mean that right now the 60s would be public domain and the 70s would be on their way. So we can take from that secondary paragraph, what he means is there should be no distinction between individuals and corporations. There should be a flat 50 years from publication. And I say, maybe, I mean, that could potentially make sense. But when we talk about changing laws, we have to think about what they are right now, what rights you have right now that you won't have in the future. So when we talk about 50 years, we're looking at something significantly closer to how things existed at the turn of the last century, right? Or if we want to go back, 28 plus a 14-year renewal is 42. It's pretty darn close to 1830. And so when you say in your video, I want to modernize this thing. I want to take the Copyright Act. I want to take the Copyright Law and make it fairer for today's audiences. And I'm going to make it fairer by taking us to 1831, You got to do a little bit more legwork to kind of explain why that is more fair than what exists today. And worse, what you really have to do is you really have to talk about the people that currently have the rights that they have. And one of the areas where I really fundamentally disagree with what he had to say is when he's advocating for this 50 years, he he has a section where he talks about the fact that somebody that wrote a book in 1964 shouldn't expect that to last for royalties forever. And my initial knee-jerk reaction is, why not? Right, if that person wrote that book and people are still buying that book and they're still enjoying that book and they're getting that royalty check, why why should that go away? And I don't think he has a good answer for that. He just says that they shouldn't have that. That should it's unfair in some kind of fundamental way. But he doesn't kind of elaborate on what is being harmed by that being in existence. He says some stuff about creativity being stronger when that doesn't happen, but there's no real good reason that I could see articulated that. Okay, if you want to advocate against a tail period. That's one thing. If you want to say that copyright lasts until death, okay, I think you could potentially get behind that. It's similar to an estate tax or something along those lines where you say, yeah, this person earned this money. They created this thing that didn't exist without the efforts of their mind, and they deserve to reap the benefits of that throughout their lifetime. But when they die, they die and yes maybe the company the family office can license out the official version of what was released and people can support that original author's family if they want to do so but the copyright should go away when you start talking about something that is gone away in your lifetime because they shouldn't be able to expect that money i don't really follow you entirely and then we get to this card that i've got here he says a shorter copyright term would badly affect perhaps a few hundred people in the world. I would argue it will affect a lot more than that, in particular with respect to literary creations, musical creations, and things along those lines. The folks who created one hit song or one incredible book that is still bringing them money decades later and who are now relying on that money as their only source of income. It's not many people, but yes, the very, very, very few who fit into that category, it'll suck for them. So he's trying to address this complaint by saying it's it's too small of a number of people to worry about but I don't think that's a very effective argument, right? For one, the law generally has a concept in it that is very, very often used when you are making significant statutory reforms. It's called grandfathering. And it basically means if you currently have rights or if you currently have obligations, those will survive this statutory change. It's grandfathered in. So in other words, if a copyright was granted before the Tom Scott Copyright Act of 2020, then it will survive for life plus 50 years. And the, co- the, the corporate copyrights will survive just as if this Copyright Act had never, had never uh, gone into effect. But once it goes into effect, everything that is granted afterwards, whether it's registered or not, whether it's common law copyright or not, it will have these shorter time periods. That is very easy to do. I will tell you right now, it is almost certainly going to be the part of any kind of negotiation related to the reduction of intellectual property rights. Now, this is already a very, very difficult argument to make for any number of kind of structural reasons. The people and the entities that hold the copyrights and the intellectual property, but you don't want to go forward with this. You don't want to go forward with, eh? If we change it, some people will get be, get hurt. But if they get hurt, they get hurt. That's not a winner in the public eye, really, but it's not a winner just in terms of kind of your ethical thinking. You want your argument here to be about fairness, about justice, about getting people access to intellectual property, to not be harmed by other parties. And if as part of your argument, you have to sit there and say, yeah, okay, this injustice in particular is fine because I'm okay with it individually, that is a bad position to stake out in what is a very important discussion. And I don't think you need it. You can simply say, hey, we're going to grandfather in everybody that currently has copyrights, and we're going to fix this for the future, because that's what's ultimately going to happen if anything happens at all. So you give that ground because that ground is going to be taken from you regardless of whether you want it or not. And then you don't get folks like Rick and virtual legality saying, uh, I don't like any piece of this argument. So a couple of, couple of complaints here, I would say, articulate whether you mean a tail period or you mean just 50 years from publication for an individual, as it sounds like you do, articulate that you want individuals and corporations to be treated the same, and then also either double down or decide on whether or not you're going to grandfather existing rights for the existing corporate, uh, the existing copyright holders. And maybe you have some kind of interregnum period where the grandfathering is only through life, and then it cuts down to a 50-year, non-tail 50-year period for what goes forward after your act is passed. But For all of these arguments, when you're going to advocate for this kind of level of seriousness, don't put stuff out here like this, in my opinion. I don't think it's very useful to your argument. I think it winds up harming it, and you didn't need it in order to make the argument that you wanted to make at the end of the day. So he wants it to be 50 years of some kind, probably for everybody. He wants there to be a small claims court, but he doesn't like the small claims court as it currently is offered, and he wants to reform Copyright Act to be fairer, again, I think that this is a good video. I think it's an important video. I'm glad, so glad that so many more people are talking about these things. I just wish it could have been a bit clearer here at the end to actually advocate for specificness here because you've got everybody. You got us listening. You got us at the edge of your seats. And then I think to some extent, it's a little bit of a trip up at the end. Again, I don't want to say that out of, uh, you know, trying to dissuade anybody from talking about these things. I think... This was a good video. I'm glad it's out there, but I think it had slight problems at the end. And one of the biggest ones here is his last kind of going away statement, which is as follows YouTube creators. We make things because we can, because we have ideas and we want to show them to the world, not because we are thinking that our grandchildren might one day have a chance of getting a trickle of money from some future copyright license. And I think that's not terribly true, right? He talks about this a lot in the videos that he makes. I think a lot of YouTube creators make things just to create, just to get their creativity out there, just to have an experience where you put something out into the world and have people comment on it and have those conversations and maybe build a community and to have those kind of noble aspirations. But YouTube didn't get as big as it did, doesn't have as many people attracted to it as it does. If there isn't the concept that, hey, maybe I can make a living on this, that there aren't those famous YouTubers, that there aren't those famous influencers that say, you can make a living on this. This is a dream job. This is something that you should be thinking about pursuing. And what's worse, Mr. Scott knows this. He spends half of his video talking about the ways in which YouTubers have stepped over the line. He starts with an anecdote about the YouTuber that didn't have the right intellectual property license for the music that he thought he should have had. He talks about Juke Media, says they have a point. He talks about the fact that he doesn't like that kids came into YouTube after him and said, I should be able to react to all these videos and make a fortune off of them. He acknowledges all of those things in this video. And so to get to the end and say all of this copyright reform is justified because YouTubers are angelic angels that only want creativity out in the world and to share their feelings with everyone rings false and you never want to finish off your video ringing false and worse after this he then pitches the video on his subscription service that he made which I've heard good things about I'm sure it's great I don't begrudge anyone the desire to go and make money for the content that you slave over and that you make and that you spend all this time putting together and putting out there in the world what did they say in 1783 Nothing is more properly a man's own than the fruit of his study. Absolutely, right? You deserve that kind of credit, but don't pretend that everybody else is just making things because we have ideas and want to show them to the world. That isn't the case, and it rings false even within your own video. So I would have made a couple of changes here at the end, But even saying all of that, I hope you found this kind of critique and reaction to this video illuminating and educational. If you liked any of this, check out the rest of Virtual Legality. We're talking about these kinds of things all the time. You see me talking about whether GameStop can declare themselves essential retail amid various uh, shutdown orders, things along those lines. Please do check it out. Please share it around with people. And most importantly, if you're a fan of Mr. Scott's or if you're Mr. Scott himself, understand that I think it is a great thing that this video exists. I think that it is an important thing that this video exists. I want to see more people talking about these issues. And I think Mr. Scott did a bang up job in bringing a lot of the concepts to the forefront. The concept of how money impacts your access to justice, the concept of intellectual property largesse, what he describes as generosity, and how basically the entire world functions on the generosity of intellectual property holders, that copyright act reform really is necessary, that we need better access to justice, that all of these year limits probably are too long. But with the lack of specificity at the end, it just kind of has the impact for me of Lucy taking the ball away right before Charlie Brown is about to kick it. Otherwise, if you personally caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. I very much appreciate you checking in here with the channel. And if you listen to it in its podcast form, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate that as well. I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only.